This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 27. We're following Jesus through the Roman phase of the various trials before the crucifixion. Last week, Pastor examined the first five observations or stages of the trial. This week, we'll pick up where we left off and learn four more parts of the trial that conclude the Roman process. They reveal God's grace in a way you might not expect. But let's not lose focus of Pilate. Pilate is put in a difficult position, to be sure, but not one that's impossible to sort through. He continues to be an example of how every person must confront the truth about Jesus, and he's an example of what not to do, as we'll learn from today's message from Pastor Pierre. Now, I have identified nine components of the Roman trial of Jesus. The accusation, the answer, the amazement, the attempt, the alarm, which we studied last week. This week, we're going to look at the appeasement, the abdication, the antagonism, and the affliction. So follow along with me if you have your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew 27. We're going to read verses 20 to 31. Actually, we're going to start from verse 19 to get situated contextually here properly. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, and this is Pilate, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, singing, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And that concludes the uh, Roman version of the trial of Jesus here. What we have here, church, is the wisdom, the majesty, the authority, and the perfection, not only the innocence, but the perfection of Christ in all of these elements that we started studying last week, which we'll finish today. Let's look at the appeasement here. And this is from the part of Pilate, verses 20 to 23. Now, the governor here desperately tried to get out of his moral dilemma. Remember, this is a moral dilemma that he was facing. On the one hand, should he do the right thing and release the prisoner who everybody knew was innocent and therefore risk his political career? Or on the other hand, should he appease the mob and gain temporary approval from the world? So he's, he's got this moral dilemma and the people of the Sanhedrin are not helping him. They're supposed to lead him in the truth. Now, we believers should stand for truth because we believe in the one who is the truth and we follow the one who is the truth. So even when the mob demands our capitulation, we don't. We stand for the truth. 
no matter the consequence. But here in the scene, we have the Gentile governor here asking a fourth question. Remember, last week we looked at the three questions that he asked, and each one of those questions we applied to our own lives, and they had significant application points. Well, here's another one. It forces us to confront our own moral dilemma here when we read the question of Pilate here. What should we do? Should we make decisions based on popular demand or popular opinion or anyone else's opinion considering even our own heart? By the way, remember, following your own heart is the worst counsel someone can ever give you because our heart is deceitful. So should we make decisions based on what everybody else wants us to do or what God's Word defines that we should do? Well, thankfully, Paul clarifies that issue for us. He writes, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were try, still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Galatians 1, verse 10. So our job, our goal, church, as followers of Christ is to please God, is to make decisions based on what the Word of God says, even when our own hearts tells us otherwise. Even if our own intuition says, no, we shouldn't do this. Paul also illustrates this idea. He says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. 2 Timothy 2 verse 4. So church, we do what Scripture says, no, mo no matter what everybody else says, no matter what the mob says, no matter what the crowd says, no matter even what my own heart says. I can't tell you the number of times I heard people say to me, for example, Pastor, but I know the Bible says I'm not supposed to marry this unbeliever, but he's such a good man, or she's such a good person. No, there's no doubt. I have no disagreement there. I'm, I'm sure he is a good man or she is a good lady. But the Bible is clear that we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. So there's no negotiating, no way around. And the same goes for every other issue that the Bible is clear about. Even in things that, the, that you don't think the Bible is clear. We go with what Scripture says. Now, Pilate was a pagan, but he should have listened to his wife because his wife told him, I, I have a bad feeling about this, you know, have nothing to do with this man. And this is, again, this is not because she was a prophetess, but because this was God convicting Pilate. Listen, you have plenty of evidence to let this man go, let Jesus go. He should have fulfilled his duty as a judicial slash executive magistrate and ensure the complete acquittal of Jesus. And the reason he should have let Jesus go is because integrity transcends ethnicity, transcends religion, time, or political affiliation. But there's another lesson here, one from uh, the fifth question that uh, governor, the governor here asked, and that's the question of the ages. What shall I do with Christ? It's the question that all of us need to answer. And we can't punt it like Pilate is trying to do. No, everyone who is ever born will have to answer that question. What shall I do now that I know about Jesus Christ? You have to make a decision. You can't postpone it. Postponing it is already making a decision. It's saying no. It's declining the offer of salvation. And here is Pilate confronted with the evidence, with the obvious, with the truth. What shall I do? The crowds of that day made their choice. They picked a real criminal over the perfect Son of God. We can only hope that some of them later understood the picture of substitution, that Christ was going to literally take the place of Barabbas on that cross. The Romans prepared three crosses for that day. One of them was meant to go to Barabbas, but then he was released and Jesus took his place on the cross. And since that day, the message is very clear that Christ is a substitute for sinners. He takes the place of sinners like you and me. He did it on that day and took the place of Barabbas and he did it for you too. He took your place as a condemned man or a woman before God. Now, 
some of the people in that mob actually made the right choice afterwards. And that's where the Scripture provides us hope here for us too. Not too long after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter preached his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. And the same people, presumably, who were there crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus at the Passover now heard the gospel very clearly presented on the day of Pentecost. Listen to how Luke describes this in Acts 2, verses 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, and this is the preaching of the gospel by Peter, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the, name of the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who, were, who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So presumably some of the people who were there demanding Pilate to release Barabbas and demanding the crucifixion of Christ now asked Peter, what shall we do? And uh, they got saved. Why? Because is there any merit in them? No, it's because of the grace of God. The same God who allowed Jesus Christ to go through this unjust trial is gracious enough to demonstrate grace even to his enemies and to save people who don't deserve to be saved, namely you and me. We don't deserve to be saved. And God is still in the business of saving people who at one point hated him, but now exercise saving faith. Is that your case this morning? Listen to Pilate's sixth question here, and it addresses the corruption of the human heart. Christ's innocence has already been established, but the crowd's hatred for Jesus was so intense that they continue to call out for the crucifixion. They're, they're, they're like blind, demonic people who can't even reason together. No, just don't, don't say anything. Just crucify him. We want his blood. So after the appeasement, the next element of this unjust trial is the abdication. And at this point, Pilate became, again, a negative example for all of us. Remember, the characters of the Bible here provide examples for us to either follow or to avoid now, which one we determine by the context of the Word of God here, clearly what we have here in the case of Pilate is a failed leader. Now, describing the same scene, Luke reports that Pilate met with the chief priests and rulers of the people again after he sent Jesus to Herod, to Herod's jurisdiction. And you remember this story, Herod sent Jesus back saying, I find no guilt in this man. Here, he's not a threat to Rome. Look, this is not an insurrectionist. But in that meeting, back in the, uh, in the headquarters of Pilate, the governor offered a compromise. Listen to what he said. Luke 23, verses 14 through 16. He's talking to the people of the Sanhedrin here. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you, have, which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold... Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. See, this is a compromise. This is not compassion. This is a compromise that Pilate is offering here. It's terrible leadership. But the bloodthirsty members of the Sanhedrin did not like that deal. They want nothing less than the full execution of Jesus Christ, torture style. But again, Pilate is trying to negotiate with them. He's trying to... To, to appease them. He, he's abdicating, therefore, his leadership. He insisted. Verse 22, why, he says, what evil has this man done? 
I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. He said, listen, I'm going to rough him up a little bit here for you guys to see it. Let him be beaten and, and abused a little bit here, and, and you should be fine. This is a blind act of desperation here. Again, he's thinking about his own political career. He's not thinking about Jesus Christ. He's not thinking about truth or morality or integrity. He's trying to save face. He's trying to look good for the people. He doesn't want to get in trouble with Caesar, you know, Tiberius Caesar, the one who appointed him. But here's the question, church. If, if Jesus is innocent, why punish him at all? Why offer that compromise? No, this is cowardice. Anything less than complete acquittal followed by restitution and condemnation of the people who accused Jesus, falsely accused, condemning them of murder. Anything less than that would have fallen short of justice. But according to John, the proverbial nail in the coffin of Pilate's dignity came from the following the man of the people. John 19, verse 12. They said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And that's what the problem was for Pilate. He said, they said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And again, I hope you see the hypocrisy in this. These folks did not care about Caesar. They did not like Rome. They considered Rome to be the oppressor. They wanted nothing more than an insurrectionist to succeed and overthrow Rome. So they're, they're, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth here. They're being double-tongued, double-minded. Now, don't miss the blatant hypocrisy. They were not friends of Caesar. They could care less about Caesar. They wanted Jesus Christ crucified. They wanted him dead. Why? Because he is confronting their lies. All throughout his earthly ministry, he is calling them out and saying, your righteousness falls short. And in order for you to make it to heaven, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I am the only one way to get to the Father. In other words, they're saying, no, 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 we are the way to the Father. The people need to come to us, not to Jesus. We need to eliminate him. And Pilate is caught in the middle. He wasn't even a Jew. He's caught in the middle here. But the example for us is that he relinquished his leadership completely at this point. Listen again to how Luke describes what happened next. Luke 23, verse 24. He pronounced sentence that their demands be granted. I mean, this is, uh, you're given to the people what they want. Verse 25, he delivered Jesus to their will. In other words, he finally gave in. He did what the mob wanted him to do. He capitulated. He was in Jerusalem to avoid a riot, but when he saw that things were getting out of control, he simply abdicated responsibility altogether. This, this guy is a chicken. And, it, 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 and to make things a little, a little more pathetic, he did this hand-washing theatrics. This was not Roman practice. This was a way for him to poke back at the Jews, saying, listen, I am innocent of this man's blood. And he's using a custom that the Jews were used to in Deuteronomy 21, verse 6, Psalm 26, verse 6. The Jews were all about washing hands. So Pilate was saying, okay, well, listen, I'm going to do what you guys do. This is my, I, I'm innocent of this man's blood, as if his own pronouncement of his own innocence would do anything. It doesn't. But again, he is being sarcastic here. He is poking back at the Jews for the same reason he put the inscription on the top of the cross there in Matthew 27, verse 37. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, he should have dismissed the whole thing for lack of evidence, regardless of the, the consequences. He is doing what politicians do all the time, all since the beginning of, of history. And our society today is no different. Our society, our culture today suffers from abdication of responsibility, specifically male leadership, because we're so confused about what it is to be a man. 
in our society, in our culture today that we have forgotten what it means to lead with courage, what it means to lead in the middle of danger and be, and be a man. There's a reason why Paul finishes the letter to the Corinthians with these words, I act like man. And those words couldn't be more relevant to our society than in our days because we can't even tell the difference between men and women now anymore. We have to go, keep going back to Scripture. But like Pilate, our culture has become confused what it means to lead with integrity, upholding godly principles. Let me tell you what Scripture says about people in position of leadership here that Pilate had. Psalm 72, verse 11. Let all kings bow down before him, meaning God. All nations serve him. In other words, whether you're a king, a governor, or a president, you bow down to God. You don't bow down before pressure from the people. You don't bow down before manipulation. You serve God. Proverbs 16, verse 12, It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. So every person in leadership, civic leadership, must follow the pattern that God has established in His Word. Now, the Roman governor here got his reminder from Jesus himself about that. When Jesus told him in John 19, verse 11, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So in other words, Jesus says, The only reason you're here, Pilate, is because God has determined that you'd be here. And you have this delegated authority, not from Caesar, but from God. Obviously, Caesar is the mechanism by which you exercise your authority. But listen, the only reason you have temporary authority over me is because God has determined in his infinite wisdom. And what we learn from this church is that God will hold every mayor, every house representative, every senator, every county leader, every governor, every king, every emperor, and every president according to these standards right here. Not according to any political party's agenda, but according to this absolute truth. Look at verse 26 here. Pilate ordered the scourging of Jesus. Again, this is capitulation. This is no, no act of compassion here. He's trying to save face. He hoped that he would rough him up just enough for people to see that he was willing to meet them in the middle kind of a thing. The problem was that a Roman scourging was almost already a death sentence. And in many cases, people didn't survive. Now, Pilate obviously was counting on the fact that Jesus was a young man in his early 30s, and he will probably survive the torture of a Roman scourging. But again, many people lost their lives even during the whole ordeal because of blood loss and pain shock. The reason for that is because a Roman whip, known as the flagellum, was designed not only to inflict pain, but to cause irreversible damage. It was designed to open the skin of the victim and peel muscle tissues and fibers, and basically turn their backs into ground beef. And that's how Jesus' back would have looked like after this whole thing. Now, John provides more details, minus all the gore. He says this, after the scourging, John 19, verses 1 through 6, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, listen, he's showing Jesus all bloodied up to them. He said, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Listen, I've already had him scourged. Let him go. Jesus then came out wearing a, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify and Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate is desperate here. He has already ordered the scourging of Christ, which is torture, which was a crime in itself. If the man is innocent, why would you do that? 
But the people are demanding the crucifixion of Christ. Again, they're demonic possessed at this point. And it's not an assumption to say that Satan was involved because remember, Satan himself entered Judas during the betrayal part of this. So he's watching this, is instigating the people there, and they're demanding the crucifixion of Christ. So besides the appeasement and the abdication here, we have the antagonism of the people. Verse 25. Sadly here, the people pronounced their own sentence in demanding the crucifixion of Jesus. When Pilate said to them, listen, I find no guilt in him. Do that yourselves. I am innocent of this man's blood, and he really wasn't. And the people said, well, his blood be on us. And they're pronouncing their own curse. They have no idea what they're saying. here. They're, they're so blinded by sin, blinded by rage and anger, that they're articulating their ignorance. Now, their antagonism against Jesus has been brewing for some time, because you will remember, he has been confronting the religious leaders of the time. He is confronting lies. And he's saying, I am the truth. And, and he's saying, you, you are telling people that they need to come to you before they come to the Father. But I'm telling you, I am the only one way to the Father. And he's saying, you tell people you shall not murder, but you're already murdering them in your heart just by hating each other. So because of that, they hate him. But it's important to remember that even though God will hold each one of them accountable for their sin, they did make a choice after all. They're, they're making the choice to follow the crowds here. The entire passion of Christ happened under divine sovereignty. It's important to remember this here because we're reading this scene. It's a sad scene. It's a gory image here. There's blood all over the place. But this is happening under divine control, divine sovereignty. He has determined this before the foundation of the world. He will hold everyone here involved in this accountable for their decisions. But this has not escaped the control of God. This is not a picture of failure. This is a picture of victory. The victory of the cross. And in the plans of God here, he included the widespread hostility of even the Jews. Remember how the gospel of John starts. In the prologue of that gospel, he came to his own, meaning his own people, but his own received them not. So it had been determined from the foundation of the world that when Jesus would come, he would be rejected by his own people. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So from a human perspective, these people here were engaging in typical mob behavior. They wanted to be on the right side of history here. And the quote-unquote right side of history on that time would be to mock Christ and to reject him and to stand against him, just much like our society today. And it has blinded the eyes of people then, it blinds the eyes of people today. Let's look at the last element of this illegal trial here to understand the majesty of God. We have the appeasement, the abdication, the antagonism, and now the affliction, the affliction of Christ. He's a man of sorrows, and then Matthew then describes part of that sorrow. Now, there's the physical pain of being scourged Roman style, and there's the emotional pain of being mocked and abused here and humiliated. He was left barely alive. And by the way, this was on purpose, again, going back to a Roman scourging. And, and Jesus was so weak that we're told here that somebody had to carry the horizontal beam of the cross for him. But Jesus also endured the humiliation from the Praetorian guard. Christ did not look like a king because, again, according to Isaiah 53 verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. So church, who crushed Christ? The Father. The Bible says here, the Lord was pleased to crush him. How did he do it? Using evil people. And the purpose of the Father crushing His own Son is so that you and I won't have to be crushed for eternity if we place our trust in Jesus. 
And God's offer of forgiveness and redemption extended to even the very people who did this, the people who mocked him. Remember, from the cross, Jesus prayed, according to Luke 23, verse 34, and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is, he's praying for the Roman executioners there. And we already know from the Bible that there is no prayer from the Son that the Father does not answer, because the Son always prays according to the will of the Father. So obviously, the Father honored that prayer. When Jesus said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Listen to when that happened. Matthew 27, verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So here you have it, church. Evidence that these guys, at least some of the Roman guards here, repented in response to Jesus' prayer to the Father This is a demonstration of God's grace. This is the beauty of grace in the middle of injustice, here in the middle of a a gory scene. And therefore, Scripture sets the stage to shine the spotlight on the grace of God. If He forgives people who abused and mocked Jesus then, He continues to offer forgiveness to people who reject Him today. And therefore, the scene of the Roman trial here shows us a clear picture of saving grace. I hope His wisdom, majesty, authority, and perfection will help us adjust our life to honor and please the one who endured all of these things for you and for me. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.